Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, the first episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet. My name is Arden O'Connor, and I'm the founder of O'Connor Professional Group. And I'm thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Diana Clark. Do you want to share a little bit about your background, Diana? Sure. I'm sitting here in Vermont. I have been with O'Connor Professional Group since the beginning. And One of the things about this particular era is that I'm spending more time in Vermont as opposed to on the road in the Boston office. I have been the chief of clinical operations for O'Connor Professional Group for a number of years, on and off, as we say. And my passion and, in fact, mission is working with families and organizations about talking about the things that are difficult, which is in part why we started this podcast. I agree. Um, And for those of you who are listening and are not familiar with our company, we work with families who are struggling with an array of behavioral health challenges from addiction to mental health issues to eating disorders to autism. And we got into the work because many of us, including Diana and myself, had family members who fell into one of those buckets and we felt like the way in which families navigated the system was complicated, unnecessarily emotionally draining, and we thought we could come up with a better solution. So maybe we'll start out with a big question as to, you know, how did we meet Diana? Do you want to tell the story? Sure, I'd love to. I actually really love this story. I was teaching a workshop that I had been teaching for a number of months at a local drug and alcohol treatment program, and there were round tables around the room and right in front of me at the premier spot, I might add, was sitting Arden O'Connor with her hair in a ponytail and her eyes as bright and as piercing as they could be. And I remember this vividly, and yet it is 11 years ago. So I did the workshop and she laughed at all the appropriate spots and nodded at all the appropriate spots. And it was a vivid memory for me. And she approached me after and said, I'm thinking about starting this company. And I thought I, in my arrogance, was going to mentor her in this field. And here I am now, almost 10 years later, wondering what I'm going to learn from Arden next. Well, that is a very sweet way to encapsulate our first meeting. I remember it slightly different, uh, or differently. I remember sitting there, just as you described, and really interested in every word that you had to say. I remember um, I was there, just for context, because my youngest brother, Chris, had struggled with an addiction issue for a long time, and this was part of the family program. Um, so when he goes to treatment for his 30 to 60, what turned out actually to be closer to five or six months instead of the 30 to 60 days most people go, um, they offer these family Uh, workshops for siblings, for parents, for anybody related or anybody in the support system of the person who's struggling. 
And I was appointed the person from my family system to attend because my parents, their quote was, we've already been to about five of these. There's nothing they're going to say that's going to be different. And I had been to a couple of the family workshops with them, but I thought I would give this one a try. And I was so glad I did. And I came home um, immediately. And I don't know if I ever shared this with you, Diana, but I, I came in, I had gotten your contact info and I my parents knew I was hoping to start a company that helps families like ours. But I gave them your card and said, forgetting what I'm planning to do with the card, you two need to call her because she has a different perspective. And I remember that because I felt like what you said in that workshop was authentic. It was simple. It was practical. It wasn't theoretical. It wasn't asking too much information or too much of family members. You know, I think my parents' experience to date had been more conversations about, well, how does this make you feel? And how do you help yourself? And really what they were looking for solutions as to how to manage some of my brother's behaviors. You know, what do they do if he experiences a relapse? Or what do they do if he comes home and he refuses to go to therapy? And I just remember saying to them, she has a totally different way of thinking about this. And that's why you've, I've been lucky enough to have you on this journey at O'Connor Professional Group for the past 10 years. And I'm extraordinarily grateful I wish you could see the big smile on my face right now. I never knew that part about you going home. Oh, I did. I did. And, you know, my parents, you know my parents now, and they're lovely people. But at the time, they were quite resistant. And um, I think they, they just, they sort of said, well, we'll do it because you've asked us to, but we're not sure we'll learn anything. And I know they would be in my corner saying, boy, did they learn something when they called you. Great. But I do think that brings us to another question is, you know, why, why are we starting this podcast? And, and who do we think it's going to impact? What do we hope to spread in terms of education or the message? So I have my reasons, and I don't think they're always the same as yours. My reasons would be that I really want to promote a sense of family recovery. So in any of the stories we talk about, in any of the mysteries we wind up piercing for mental health and behavioral health, my hope is that there's a family member or somebody listening who will say, I can do this differently. I don't have to hide from it. I don't have to be sucked in by it, but I am going to be part of it. So that's one of my ways of thinking about this podcast is just a way to promote that. What about you? It's a great, I think it's a great example of where we come philosophically very much from a similar place, but we get there by different avenues. You know, mine was a much more because I am sort of the business person behind the endeavor. I I think about sort of what has been our journey trying to explain to people, you know, what our company focuses on, what we offer. Um, And I think back to a conference that I attended with a trust and estate planner, and he was a lovely man. And he came up to me and he said, you know, really, you have some interesting content to share. I had just done a PowerPoint presentation with probably 30 people. And he said, you know, one thing you might consider is writing a book. Um, And his way of describing is it was sort of like an expensive calling card, like this is a way to establish some credibility in the industry. And he was interested specifically in the ways in which mental health and substance use and other behavioral health issues interface with families of, of means or families of wealth. 
Um, there's books, I think, on both ends of those topics. So there's books specifically about mental illness or substance use in families and individuals, tons of memoirs, many of which have been made into movies. And then there's books about wealthy families and there's series that, you know, dramatic series that depict it, but there's not necessarily a book dedicated to just the intersection of the two. And, and Diana, you know me well. I am a, a do, I like to do the right thing, and I am a person who follows rules, is probably the best way to encapsulate it. So when somebody tells me something and I like the idea, you know, I went home and that weekend <laughs> I created an outline and I can hear your laughter. I had it all written down here. You know, we're, we're going to write a book. I think you'd been at the company maybe two or three years. And I know you have written a book. So I thought, well, this is great. She already has written a book. I have an outline. We're just going to start writing. And, you know, I, I have a, a mentor who's an author, and I remember her describing her summer home and how she, you know, used to find a way on the weekends to spend, you know, four or five hours in addition to her day job, hold up in her cottage, writing in one of the rooms. And I had this very romanticized notion of how this was going to work that, you know, Saturday mornings, I was going to have a cup of coffee, I was going to work on my part of the outline, um, you were going to work on yours, and we would create this masterpiece that we put out into the universe. And I, I, I'm sure you remember this, my experience of this was actually quite different than that. You know, I found it very difficult to sit and write and put pen to paper and explain all the lessons we had learned. I found the intensity of running a business and trying to continue to educate people in one-on-one -on -one meetings and sell the services that we offer and at the same time dedicate massive amounts of time to this project to be really challenging to manage and, and frankly, not all that fun. I, I had no romantic notions once I started trying to sit down and write at you know two hours a chunk, which I, I tried to for a long time, and finally realized like the mission of what we were trying to do could be achieved in so many ways. And, and writing a book is certainly one of them. But I think there are many other ways that we can educate people in public speaking opportunities and blog posts. Um, and, you know, because we get along so well, because we enjoy doing presentations, the idea of doing a podcast seemed like a natural outgrowth of what we were already doing. I agree. I agree. And I do have to tell you, I laugh when you talk about the book story, because the first sentence in my draft of the book was, why are we writing this book? And then I would go on. But it was always <laughs> just, I wasn't quite sure. I was just following your lead. Well, I appreciate you um, always indulging me in these ideas that I have. So, wow. you know, one of the things I think we want to be able to answer to listeners is, you know, why might this content be helpful or relevant, particularly to not just family members, but to advisors? And I, I know I have an answer for that, and I'll start there. And, and Diane, I'd love you to chime in. You know, I think one of the things we've recognized over the past now nine years running the company are, is that there are many situations where families come to us you know, as family members, I'm a sibling of somebody struggling with a mental illness issue. I'm a parent, I'm a spouse. But in other circumstances, whether it's a trust and estate attorney, whether that is a wealth manager, whether it's somebody in a family office, you know, families will disclose very intimate details of their struggles 
to those around them. And it might be somebody who is in a position where they are a trusted advisor. They may be focused on a completely different area of that person's life. They may be responsible for tax planning or managing their real estate or managing their homes, but they are somebody that that client feels comfortable with. Um, And that's the person sometimes who is the first call when a family bumps up against a challenging issue. And you know, one of the things I'm thinking about as the markets are responding the way they are, um, and and there is pressure on many financial institutions and even attorneys to continue to look at, you know, what are the holistic needs of my clients? Is that being educated in the areas of not just mental well-being but physical well-being, and what are those resources that can help families with some of the most pressing questions they'll have? can only be a benefit to an advisor. I you know, I always think about an example that we had a few years ago of a family that was going to, you know, they were prospecting with a couple of different family office groups. And they happened to mention in one of their initial meetings with one particular firm that one of their challenging issues to manage as a family was their son's addiction. And one of the members of the team at that group had the courage to say, you know, I know a group that might be able to be helpful and we know that they signed on for our services and we helped them get into a better place. And and really we learned later that that family went back to that advisor and said, we're going with your team and part of the reason we're doing it is because you certainly made a you know a compelling pitch on the financial end, but really you showed that you were committed to helping our family solve some of our most pressing challenges. So I think there is no bigger gift for advisors than to feel like they can be helpful when someone that they're working with really is in a very challenging situation. And you know our expertise happens to be in the mental health side, but we're gonna have a slew of guests who also represent areas of medical expertise, which we know can be really challenging for families to navigate as well. I think that's right, Arden. And I, my hope is also that we can provide language so that when these issues come up, they're not so scary. You know, when somebody drops an issue like addiction or anorexia in your million, right in your environment, you feel like, oh, what's the answer to something like that? That's really serious. So my hope is that we can provide a little bit of information so that people are more comfortable having those conversations about them and the pause isn't so painful. I think that's a great point. I think in many situations, we know that advisors themselves may have had something similar in their own family system. But when it comes to that professional rapport, there's always the balancing act of, you know, when am I stepping over the line and potentially risking my relationship with this client? And when am I being helpful and suggesting a resource that they'll be grateful for that I did suggest it? And I, I think you've encapsulated it beautifully. Thank you. So when you think about what issues are important to cover, you know, what are the things that come to mind for you and, and how might those issues be different for wealthy families versus, you know, families of more modest means? So I get very excited about talking about mental illness, frankly, because I think our perception and stigma in our country is if you have a mental illness, there is a limited trajectory in life. And I would love to clarify that there are lots of people struggling with major mental illnesses who have very powerful lives, including one of our guests in the third episode. I love that idea. 
Um, you know, I think in our arena that, you know, O'Connor Professional Group specializes in addiction, certainly through our family story and through other family stories is an area that where wealth and behavioral health intersect in ways that make the situations that wealthy families find themselves in sometimes more complicated in, in many ways. On the one hand, I always say it's a dichotomy. They can afford great treatment resources, but at the same time, they can prevent natural consequences from happening. And I think we'll see situations like that play out through the series of guests we have on the show. You know, I'm thinking broadly about other issues that impact families. And I think when we when we think about the lifestyle needs of wealthy families, people who are traveling, you know, to multiple homes and they get a serious cancer diagnosis or they have a medical issue happens when they're abroad. I'm thinking about the types of experts who can help mm -hmm. families think about how you navigate those types of challenging situations. You know, yeah, I, I, I think there. when people, excuse me, I'm sorry, I got excited there. I was thinking about the traveling abroad because that isn't happening right now on a large scale, but it will happen again. And what kind of insurance policies, if somebody is sick, what kind of resources can be in place for somebody so that they can travel while they're not necessarily well? I think you're right. And please do jump in. We're going to have, I think, several moments during the course of this podcast where one of us is thinking, pick me, pick me, I have something right. to say. Um, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, one of the benefits of having more extensive uh, financial resources is that you have some flexibility sometimes and some there's some creative options that can be out there. I also think about, you know, the fact that in many cases, you know, families of means don't always want it advertised that that's the position they're in and that seeking help um, for both medical and psychiatric issues can be difficult. I think about clients we've known who've gotten a cancer diagnosis and they're running a family business and they're concerned about how many people find out before they know what the actual prognosis is going to be or before they've done any planning. You know, they, the nervousness about what that could mean for the future of their family business. And then certainly, you know, once again, in our arena, folks who are struggling with more psychiatric issues um, and not necessarily, you know, being nervous if they are seen going into a therapist's office or, or some, of the, some of the challenges that come with going into a self-help meeting and disclosing if you know that this family represents major buildings in town or major philanthropic organizations, that it can be very challenging for that family to feel like, boy, I'm going to feel comfortable talking about my son's substance use issue when I know there's going to be others who are sitting here who can't afford what I can afford in terms of treatment and maybe looking at it saying, what problems can you have because you've come from such extended resources? And the problems are different. They really are. When the limitation of finances is decreased, the options are magnified. And so what is the right option for somebody struggling with any kind of disorder when insurance isn't really the driver. I think that's true. And I think one question we know comes up frequently for clients is, you know, does more expense, does the, the provider who charges more, does that equal better care? And, you know, we are still, we're, we're getting better as a country around this, but we still don't have a lot of transparency um, with the exception of certain medical procedures into 
various healthcare systems and knowing, you know, is this, res- I think about it particularly on the mental health side, it's very hard to evaluate one facility from another. Um, but even figuring out which doctor is better, we can look at where they're credentialed, we can look if they made certain top docs list, but it's it's difficult. And I think in many ways, you know, families can often feel like they're being taken advantage of because who they are in the community. And there are issues of providers being very accustomed to, you know, working with a family and not necessarily making a change in a medical plan because it's comfortable to just sort of stay in the status quo. I also think about some of the challenging issues that can arise when we have people who are receiving care from multiple providers. And you've got you know, that that proverbial too many cooks in the kitchen with everybody trying to figure out, you know, I have this idea about what is at play and I need this diagnosis to be put on record. Um, You know, and some of the challenges that then come for family members trying to figure out, you know, who do they trust and who do they believe? Exactly. I'm thinking about also the idea that while families of means may have the opportunity and that the more somebody charges isn't necessarily a guarantee of value or quality, there is the notion that they are more vulnerable to privacy intrusions. So it isn't just a fictitious what if the news gets out. They are more apt to have those intrusions because of their positions in communities and society. Well, then I think you raise an interesting question as to what, you know, what is the advisor's role in all of this? And are they the person who is, you know, depending on what type of advisor it is, if it's a trust and estate attorney, you know, how much of a solution provider do they have to be in a situation where, let's say, a beneficiary has developmental disabilities? You know, how far does their role extend? I'm thinking about some of the situations you've dealt with, with, you know, celebrity clients who have impaired um, siblings and where there's multiple providers on a particular team, you know, whose job is it to vet whether or not these are the right providers? Um, what happens if if of, of somebody in a family office or some other type of advisor vets a provider and something doesn't go well? Um, I think there is a big fear that sometimes suggesting an option could cause more harm than good. When in fact, in many, many situations, just suggesting a good resource is really what the families are looking for. They can't expect us, you, to have answers all the time, but they can hope that we will be able to provide them the next step. And I think I think you I think that's a great point. And I also think when it comes to sort of providing resources, recognizing that there's going to be times, where families are not open to getting resources. So what do you do? I think one of the tougher questions, and maybe this will be on a Stump Diana day where we try and ask you the most challenging case scenarios that we've ever had, you know, but what do you do if you see a family that is really struggling with a particular diagnosis or a pretty scary issue and they're not willing to get help? Like, how do you make change then? And you're the advisor watching either finances dwindle, you're seeing sibling resentments, you're seeing high-risk scenarios that put the family in a liability position. What do you do if the family, either the person who's impacted by the issue or the surrounding family members say like, we don't want to touch this. You know, we, we're good. We don't think it's an issue. We'll deal with it down the road, whatever their, whatever their um, 
tendency is, um, what do you do then? So I can see two different things. I think number one, it is our job as professionals to advise families and uh, corporations and organizations about the upside and downside of that approach. And then the downside of that approach is pretty clear to me as a mental health professional that as issues get progress, as issues are delayed in treatment, they progress. That's by and large what we see. Um, the other thing is that very often if we can approach the one member of the family who is receptive to change, we can shift a system from that point and pivot. But it does take skill. And that would be my hope is to have people on this show who can talk about how do you identify the person in a family system or organization that can be a change maker in an unhealthy dynamic. I love that idea. And I also feel like one of the pieces that I hope this show gives advisors is information, tactics, different suggested approaches to raising that proverbial elephant in the room question. You know, how do you talk, tackle the issue that the family either consciously or subconsciously knows exists, but has been nervous to touch because of a whole variety of challenges that they're, they're afraid might happen or their perception of what will happen if they try to address it. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll hear some folks talk about that because I think all of us have different tolerance for raising these challenging questions and different relationships with the clients we serve. Um, and, and different, we all come from different firms with different cultures around, you know, how intimately do we want to get involved in some of these issues? Exactly. Exactly. So one of the ideas we had when we were discussing this podcast, Arden, was to close each and every episode on something to consider. So what would be that something to consider today? Of course, you had to throw a stump Arden question on the first episode. No, I, I, I mean, for me, <laughs> I think the something to consider, well, I'll do a funny one and then I'll do a real one. I would say the funny one would be something to consider would be listening to episode two of the Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. But um, another more serious something to consider is if you were an advisor who had the capacity to address some of these mental and physical issues and it, with clients, if you had the capacity to suggest resources to figure out ways to have meaningful conversations with your clients around them, how would it impact your practice? And, and what competencies could you learn that would be beneficial to you as a professional? That's a great something to consider. I like it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for all those who are listening to our first episode. We hope that you'll be back on episode two and we wish you a great day. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.